late September of my freshman year of high school, just four months after my conversion, I attended the See You at the Pole rally at the flagpole in front of my high school. See You at the Pole is a yearly event that gathers evangelical students at their respective institutions to pray at the foot of the American flag. By my senior year, I went beyond the yearly event. I committed to praying at the flag every Friday and invited anyone to join me. Sometimes I was alone when I stood there at the pole an hour before school. Sometimes there were three or four of us. We prayed for God to reign in our school and in our nation. We asked him to combat the godlessness of our culture. We gathered at the foot of our country's national symbol in order to ask God to retake what was rightfully his. Welcome to The Orange Wave, a history of the religious right since 1960, a series by straight white American Jesus and written and produced by me, Bradley Onishi. On our previous episode, we examined how Reagan's alliance with white evangelicals in Southern California and across the country was not a flash in the pan. It was not a marriage of convenience organized hastily during the 1979 presidential campaign. For 20 years, Reagan was bathed in the waters of Christian libertarianism, as Gerardo Marti calls it. His candidacy combined the far-right tendencies of the John Birch Society, the extremism of Barry Goldwater, and the libertarian ideology pervasive in Orange County, Southern California, and other parts of the country. The religious right chose Reagan over Carter because they believed the Hollywood actor represented these ideas and values more than the Baptist peanut farmer from rural Georgia. His election was viewed as a crowning achievement. Jerry Falwell, often viewed as the figurehead of the modern religious right, said that there's no question that Moral Majority and other religious right organizations turned out millions of voters for Ronald Reagan. By the time Ronald Reagan was elected, the religious right was not a regional movement. It went well beyond the orange wave in Southern California and the Deep South. It was a national tide led by familiar names such as Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Phyllis Schlafly, and Tim LaHaye. Despite theological differences, they all shared a common political position, the same one I had in mind when I prayed at the foot of the American flag in high school. In their mind, Christians were losing their country. The demographics were changing, but not in their favor. The USA needed to return to God and the Christian values on which the country was founded. <laughs> This approach to religion and politics is what scholars call Christian nationalism. It's an ideology that sees this country as founded for and by white Christians. It has not gone away. In their new book, Taking America Back for God, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead examine Christian nationalism as the most effective predictor for support for Donald Trump. In other words, if you are a Christian nationalist, if you believe this country was built for and by white Christians, if you believe there should be a closer relationship between the government and Christianity, if you believe there should be prayer in our schools, then there is a very good chance you are a supporter of Donald Trump. In the book, Perry and Whitehead quote someone named Ashlyn from the Midwest. Here's what Ashlyn says. Well, I don't have a problem with Muslims in this country practicing their religion. I don't want it forced on me or to be told I now live in a Muslim country or a Buddhist country or anything. I believe our framers founded on Judeo-Christian principles, as I said before, and that is their intention was not to define we're Baptist, we're Catholic, we're Protestant, we're Lutheran. It was just we're Christian. You can hear in this comment that underneath a fear of the country losing its supposed Christian heritage was a fear of demographic change along racial, ethnic, religious lines. The vision of America that the religious right wants to maintain is a white patriarchal society of landowning gentry where cross and flag are tied together and where racial, religious, and sexual minorities know their place. Here's Robert Jeffress, pastor of a Dallas megachurch and a close spiritual advisor to Donald Trump. Now here's the question. What has changed? In these 150 years, has the Constitution changed and nobody told us? Is that what happened? Of course not. 
What has happened is we've allowed the secularists, the humanists, the atheists, the infidels to pervert our Constitution into something our founding fathers never intended. And it is time for Americans to stand up and say, enough, we're not going to allow this in our Christian country anymore. The sentiment here from one of the president's closest spiritual advisors is that we, meaning white Christians, have to retake American culture and dominate it. God has given us dominion over the earth, and so we are not going to rest until we have conquered all domains of American culture for God. This brings us something Gerardo Marty said at the end of last episode. Evangelicalism is best described as a political movement rather than a theological set of beliefs. He noted that white evangelicals often differ widely on core theological tenets, but are united in their political agenda, opposition to abortion and gay marriage, hardcore positions on immigration and refugees, broad support for gun rights, a belief that global warming is a hoax, and cries for religious liberty on numerous fronts. The orientation of evangelicalism around politics instead of theology or Christian practice didn't happen by accident. The alliance of evangelical pastors and parachurch organizations with political operatives, big donors, and media moguls took shape in the wake of the bitter defeat suffered by Goldwater and his allies in 1964. From the mid-60s to the election of Reagan, this multifaceted network trudged forward step by step in order to take America back for God and for themselves. The pastors and evangelists were often the face of the operation, but behind them there was an intricate web of actors working cohesively to retake America, even if they had to change the rules, even if they were no longer the majority. Let's go back to the Goldwater campaign, which energized evangelicals and libertarians alike. Goldwater was an extremist candidate. He was an ideologue who used collectivism of all stripes as the bete noir of modernity, the big bad other who had to be defeated by any means possible. As I explained on the previous episode, his defeat was decisive, but his campaign rippled through the following decades. Reagan, in many ways, was a more TV-ready version of Goldwater one who figured out how to code his language and intentions in ways that played to his base without triggering charges of racism or bigotry. But there were other ripple effects from the Goldwater campaign. The most important was the creation of the Council for National Policy, started by Paul Weyrich, Richard Vigory, and Morton Blackwell. Three young men who became politically active in 1964 in support of the Arizona senator, who then decided that his defeat would be the catalyst for retaking the nation. They wanted to restore the nation to the white, Christian, patriarchal, landowning model that they envisioned as the golden era of the country, something that looked more like the 18th century than the 20th. In order to understand the rise of the religious right, we have to go beyond presidential candidates. We need to understand the network of political operatives, big donors, and media moguls who worked behind the scenes, often in secret, and more often at local and state levels to retake America for God. Let's start with Paul Weyrich, widely considered the architect of the religious right, even though he was not a pastor and even though he was not an evangelical. Paul Weyrich was from Racine, Wisconsin. He was in his early 20s when he joined the Goldwater campaign. A conservative Catholic, he had been part of the Young Republicans in college. And in 1969, he witnessed a meeting of Democratic Congress members, staffers, and leaders of various lobbying groups and social organizations. He realized that if conservative Christian libertarians were going to take back the country, they would have to organize an army stronger and more rigid than the Democratic one. Soon, Weirich began founding organizations that would be battalions in the conservative army's fight to overtake its country. In 1972, he started the Heritage Foundation, which has been an influential force in Republican politics ever since. He also co-founded the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which creates policy models for state legislatures. In Weirich's mind, taking back the government would require taking control of state-level politics. Now many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. 
as a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Then there's Richard Vigory. Vigory was the son of an oil man. His first foray into politics and media was as an assistant to the radio evangelist Billy James Hargis. Hargis was an infamous segregationist and supporter of the John Birch Society, which you will remember from last episode. Vigory helped to market Hargis's book, The Negro Question, in which the evangelist extolled segregation as ordained by God. Here's what Ann Nelson says in her book, Shadow Network. Vigory was an ardent supporter of Goldwater, perceiving the Arizona senator as a genuine conservative alternative to moderate Republicans, such as Nelson Rockefeller. Vigory and his associates were crushed by Goldwater's humiliating defeat, but the rout sowed the seeds of a new movement. Vigory decided that he was going to use Goldwater's defeat to build an army. He knew that by law, a list of everyone who contributed $50 or more to a presidential campaign had to be filed with the clerk of the U.S. House of Representatives. Vigory decided he was going to use the list of Goldwater donors as a marketing tool. He went to the clerk's office, and as Ann Nelson recounts in Shadow Network, he copied down the names and addresses of everyone who had donated to the Goldwater campaign. This resulted in 12,503 3x5 index cards. Vigory replicated this process in state capitals all over the country eventually creating extensive lists of donors to conservative campaigns. He then launched the American Target Advertising as a way to mobilize the army of conservative donors. The third member of the Council for National Policy was Morton Blackwell. Blackwell was the youngest delegate at the Republican National Convention for the Goldwater Campaign. In the war to take back America waged by the CNP and its allies, Blackwell became the sergeant who trained young Republican strategists and politicians in the tactics of campaigning. Blackwell founded the Leadership Institute, which he still runs, in order to provide a home base for training conservative political operatives. The overwhelming importance of the Council for National Policy for the Rise of the Religious Right is explained vividly by Ann Nelson in her book Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Ann Nelson is a renowned journalist who has received a Guggenheim Fellowship for her historical research and a Bellagio Fellowship for her research on the social impact of digital media. She has taught at Columbia University for two decades, first at the School of Journalism and then at the School of International and Public Affairs. Let's start with the political operatives. These guys really were kind of the big bang of this network. I mean, they really were the, the thing that sort of gave birth to it. There's three young men and they're all left bitter and resentful after the Goldwater campaign, which is a very significant campaign in the history of the religious right that people forget about. 1964, we have Paul Weyrick, Richard Vigory, and Morton Blackwell. How did they get together to start what became the Shadow Network? Well, each one of the three men you mentioned had a different role and something of a, of a, of a different professional background. Wyrick was really the, the master strategist and, and the intellectual architect, and he had this ferocious vision. I, I found it quite overwhelming because his, his theoretical documents were basically we have to create a movement that will overthrow the federal government and turn American culture on its head. It was, it was just breathtakingly ambitious. And he mapped it all out. We're going to have movies and we're going to have people go watch the movies together. And we're going to take over campus organizations and get students uh, enlisted in this movement. And, and he just kind of laid it all out. But of course, he had the big vision. He didn't have a mastery of the mechanics. So for that, you had Morton Blackwell, who was a guy who was on a congressional staff, and he was all about networking and, and institution building. Uh, and he founded something called the Leadership Institute in Arlington, Virginia, which claims to have trained over 200,000 right-wing political candidates and campaign managers, spread them all over the country so that they're using the same campaign techniques, the same language, they're working hand in glove. In the future, that will play out into using the same campaign apps and feeding into master database. Uh, so it's a very powerful networking function. Uh, Richard Vigory played into it as somebody who understood some things about media. He came actually from uh, gospel radio. And uh, the, this, this 
world of people who used to be tent preacher evangelists who then went onto the radio and then figured out they could pull in millions of dollars with their gospel programs where they'd get widows and orphans to send in their pennies and they'd just add it up. And, and I think it was kind of a precursor to the prosperity gospel where it's like, you give me your money and God will bless you. And if that doesn't work out, it's not my problem. Uh, so Vickery was, his, his big idea was, was developing, you know, applying uh, uh, mass mailing marketing techniques to politics. And really beginning with the Goldwater era, started assembling mailing lists in ways that people really hadn't done in the political sphere before. And not just, not, you know, he, he started with donors and, and supporters and just kept building out that list. Uh, so all of this was going on in the 60s and into the 70s to build the foundations of this, this organization. Um, I also want to add that some of your listeners may have watched Mrs. America about, about Phyllis Schlafly, and she was very much attached to this movement. Uh, and and the, the, the streaming series makes a, a precise reference to the importance of these mailing lists. And again, they were, they were something novel and building out a list became a, a, a card that one could play in terms of political power you know, and, and could deal with, with uh, different candidates and different movements on, on the strength of those mailing lists. So here these three guys were and, and as they approached the Reagan candidacy in 1980, they had the beginnings of this machine, uh, but they needed something to really propel it, and that turned out to be Reagan. So you get to 1981, and they are really the godfathers of something called the Council for National Policy, which is founded that year. You know, one of the stories that we often tell about the religious right is that evangelicals chose Jimmy Carter over Ronald Reagan in that election, and that that was a big sort of turning point in the, the history of uh, evangelicals in the GOP over the last 40 years. What your book really does and, and the way you unfold the, the foundation of the Council for National Policy, the CNP. The CNP is what I look at as really the sort of godfather organization of the network. You know, if people are listening and they want to sort of envision how the network you're talking about, this machine begins, the CNP, the Council for National Policy is really it. So late 70s, early 80s, we have this, these three men um, they've they've sort of over the course of a, a decade and a half uh, built their media empires, their direct mail lists. They've envisioned, uh, you know, Paul Weirich was this visionary who said, "We're going to take over the country this way." And here's what you write about the CNP. Uh, this is in your prologue. The CNP was founded in 1981 by a small group of arch conservatives who realized that the tides of history had turned against them. They represented an American past dominated by white Protestant male property owners. Uh, a few lines later, you say that uh, the country uh, was changing, the de demographics are changing. So, quote, the CNP decided to change the rules. And I'm just wondering if you could um, just comment, com comment on that a little bit, because one of the things I, I really would like uh, folks to understand is that politics shapes religion just as religion shapes politics. And these three men built a political machine that was really built on, as you say, preserving the white male property owner ethos. They linked that to the religious right. But the, the overarching sort of ethos of this was white male property owners are losing their place in the world. We're also losing our majority. So we need to change the rules in order to keep it. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, they absolutely decided to change the rules because demographically they were steadily losing ground. And if you looked at the United States as it was evolving from 1960 to the present, it is steadily becoming more uh, diverse ethnically and religiously and racially. Uh, you have groups that they regarded as uh, not dominant, <laughs> such as women and minorities and, and uh, sexual proclivities. So, so all of the, these people were supposed to be under their patriarchy. I mean, that's really the only word for it. Uh, but they were steadily gaining in civil and political rights. So how do you put a break on that? Um, and some people misunderstand 
the the uh, theme of the book and say, oh, you're talking as though the Council for National Policy is this powerful organization. And I'm, I don't say that it acts on its own. It does relatively little as an organization. It's a coordinating body. So you have people from these member organizations or, or the heads of these organizations, like the National Rifle Association, like the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list, like the Family Research Council, which, which militates and lobbies against LBGT populations and women's rights and so on, and acting together, both in terms of information distribution and political organizing, they extend their reach by, by leveraging each other. It's, it's more subtle than saying, here's this all-powerful group. Uh, but I think that because they've been able to operate in secret, they've been more effective. We need to pause and make sure we get a few things clear. First, the Council for National Policy was not started by pastors. It wasn't even all evangelicals. Richard Vigory wasn't evangelical. He came from the stock of segregationist gospel radio and media. But the other two were not. Paul Weirich was a conservative Catholic and Morton Blackwell is an Anglican. Second, their politics were not built on evangelicalism or theology, but what we call Christian nationalism, the idea that the country was founded for and by Christians, and that it should stay that way. According to Perry and Whitehead in Taking America Back for God, Christian nationalists believe that the ideal model for the country is one where white male Christians hold the levers of power and all others recognize their subordinate position. This is why the religious right is not synonymous with white evangelicals. The religious right includes non-evangelicals, like the Catholic Wyrick, as well as Mormons and even some Jews whose politics align with the desire to take back America for God. This provides a helpful lens for what happened in the late 1970s when Paul Ryrick approached Jerry Falwell and other influential evangelical pastors about forming a political movement that would serve their shared interests. The goal would be to unite the political machine of the Council for National Policy with millions of conservative Christians who were not voting, a dormant moral majority, as Wyrick and Falwell called them. Here's how Ann Nelson puts it in Shadow Network. Wyrick and company offered the Southern Baptists a path to theocracy through the electoral process. They drew on a recent poll reporting that 70% of evangelical and fundamentalist Christians, estimated at 50 to 60 million people, had sat out the 1976 elections. Jimmy Carter had won the presidency by less than 2 million votes. If religious conservatives could be mobilized, their votes could turn the tide. Falwell envisioned an army of 72,000 clergy, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, and Mormons, whose mission would be political, not religious. Paul Weyrick came up with a name for the movement, the Moral Majority. Way back in our very first interview for Straight White American Jesus, I spoke to Randall Balmer about the alliance between Jerry Falwell and his army of clergy with the Council for National Policy. As Balmer explains, Wyrick motivated Falwell and his army of clergy through the issue of school segregation and taxation. Here's what he said. Invited to Washington, D.C. in November of 1990 for a very small conference of people who were really associated with the religious right. And I still to this day don't know how or why I was invited, but I was there. I found myself in a conference room, a fairly small room, with people like Carl F.H. Henry, which is a name that probably doesn't mean much to a general audience, but for evangelicals they would recognize him as one of the premier evangelical theologians mm -hmm. of the 20th century. Uh, Ralph Reed, the executive director of the Christian Coalition, which was Pat Robertson's uh, advocacy organization. Uh, Ed Dobson, who was Jerry Falwell's lieutenant at Major Moral Majority. Donald Wildman, the founder of uh, American Family Association, which uh, tried to uh, take on uh, television and, and entertainment in, in, in a very conservative way. And Paul Weyrich, who, as I said earlier, was really the architect of the religious right. So I was here in this room uh, with the, this group of people, and the ostensible reason for the meeting was to celebrate 10 years 
since Ronald Reagan had been elected president. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I, I was not in the celebratory mood. <laughs> I have to say, but, uh, there I was in this in this gathering, and uh, and Paul Weyrich, in the f- course of the first session made this point, and he was really quite uh, animated about it. He said, you know, let's remember that this movement did not come into being because of abortion. Hmm. And he was just, you know, kind of, you know, hammering this point home. And we had a break shortly thereafter, a break in the in the uh, discussion. And I went over to him and I said, uh, I want to be sure that I understood you correctly. You are saying that abortion was not part of the reason that the religious right came into being. And uh, part of the reason I asked him that was because that had been my recollection from those years. Uh, abortion simply was not part of the conversation. Yeah. And he said, absolutely not. He said, I had been trying since the Goldwater campaign in 1964 to get these people, meaning evangelicals, interested in politics. He said, I tried everything. I tried the school prayer issue. I tried pornography issue. I tried the equal rights amendment issue. I tried abortion. Nothing got their attention until the IRS began to come after, well, segregated institutions Mm -hmm. uh, like Bob Jones University and and the various segregation academies uh, in, in the South. And so that's what got me really going on this issue. And uh, as uh, I expect you probably know, I've spent, <laughs> uh, well, the better part of the last couple of decades trying to hunt down the real reasons yeah. that the religious right came into being, and it has nothing whatsoever to, be, to do with abortion. Abortion was considered a Catholic issue by uh, evangelicals in the 1970s, and it wasn't until the late 1970s that abortion uh, appeared on their radar as, as a moral issue. Well, and what I what I hear you saying then is is um, <clears throat> basically one of the architects of of the movement said to you your face. Uh, I I tried to get uh, white evangelicals involved in politics, and after many tries, the thing that worked was um, alerting them to the fact that there was a chance the federal government would take away uh, the tax exempt status uh, of certain you know universities, et cetera, um, if they remained. Um, officially segregated institutions. Uh, I mean, what, as you said, you spent two decades, you know, hunting down this case. I mean, what did that alert you to? I mean, you know, in in your, was there a light bulb there at that time that kind of said, oh, uh, if I'm going to track down the story, I got to go here. Well, sort of, I I, I suppose, I mean, I could have simply taken Weirich's word for it and, and, uh, I wouldn't have been far off base to do that, but I'm a historian. Yeah. So, uh, a historian, uh, looks into sources and looks into what happened and so I spent uh, I've spent you know more hours than I care to tally at <laughs> places like uh, the uh, archives at Liberty University which of course is Jerry Falwell's school uh, the archives at, at Bob Jones University the presidential libraries of uh, Gerald Ford Jimmy Carter of course uh, and also Ronald Reagan and then I also uh, uh, did research into the papers of Paul Weyrich, which are held, improbably enough, at the University of Wyoming mm-hmm. in Laramie, Wyoming, at yeah. the American Heritage Center. And so that's when I began to uh, put together this, the narrative about how this movement came into being. And the story, if you want me to, to uh, rehearse, rehearse it rather uh, briefly here, the story is that the real catalyst for the galvanizing of evangelical uh, voters was a court decision, but it wasn't Roe v. Wade. The real catalyst was an earlier court decision in 1971 at the District Court for the District of Columbia in a case called Green v. Connolly. The background for Green v. Connolly, of course, was uh, the 1954 Brown decision, which mandated the desegregation of public schools and also the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what happened in the Green v. Connolly case is that there were uh, families in Holmes County, Mississippi, who observed that in the first year of desegregation, the number of white students in the public schools there in Holmes County dropped from over 700 to 28 the second year of desegregation in Holmes County, the number of white students in the public schools dropped 
to zero. At the same time, several so-called segregation academies, that is, schools that were organized in order to evade desegregation, were applying to the Internal Revenue Service for tax-exempt status. Mm -hmm. And these families in Holmes County, Mississippi, said this doesn't seem right to us. And so they filed suit. Uh, This suit was joined with another suit, and it came up eventually through the court system to the District of Court in the District of Columbia. And on June 30, 1971, the District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that any organization that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable institution Mm -hmm. under the law. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it has no claims to tax-exempt status. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be the real catalyst for the emergence of the religious right. So that during the 1970s, as the IRS began to enforce that ruling, that is what caught the attention of not only of Paul Weyrich, but also, of course, Jerry Falwell, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia, Bob Jones University, and other evangelical ministers. And so that is what galvanizes them into a political movement that we know today as the religious right. The coalition built between Weyrich and his various organizations, such as the Heritage Foundation and ALEC, with the white evangelicals represented by Falwell, Pat Robertson, Tim LaHaye, and others, resulted in a political machine that would propel the religious right forward in its quest to retake America. As we have traced in the first three episodes of our series, this movement was already underway in the 1960s in the Sun Belt. Goldwater libertarianism was birthed in the Southland. But in the wake of its defeat, an army of white evangelicals and other conservative religious actors joined forces with the remnants of Goldwater's campaign to form what we now know as the religious right. Together, they determined to restore order in America, which in their mind meant the control of American government and culture by white, patriarchal, heterosexual Christians and the subservience of everyone else. The goal was not to play a part in the American experiment. Their mission was not to have a seat at the table in the ongoing American conversation. Their goal was to win. One of the first battlefronts was the media. We are all familiar by now with President Trump's attacks on the media. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. While the president's attacks on the press are extreme, they can be traced to the Council for National Policy. One of the first strategies of the CNP and the religious right in general was to dominate the media space to be the only source of information many Americans have. Here's Ann Nelson again, talking about wraparound media in middle America. For a minute about the media aspect of this. Uh, in the book, you know, you talk about your life in New York and the media that you hear uh, in New York and then turning on the radio in Oklahoma when you go home and you feel like you're in completely different worlds, you, you, different realities, different facts, different truth. And one of the early things that Richard Vigory did, one of these three men who spearheaded the CNP, was to blanket the country, particularly the South and the Midwest, the non-coastal areas, with an alternative media empire. Uh, What was his strategy for that? How did he implement something like this alternative media empire in in middle America? Well, again, the CNP's media outlets are more a function of this networking. So early on, you had the, the creation of something called, well, at that point, it was the Salem Radio Network. And it turns out that there's this whole uh, area of Southern California or, or South Central California, I should say, where you've had a lot of Southerners and Southwesterners migrate and they created a California subculture that not everyone's aware of. Uh, there's little, literally, you know, areas called Oilton and Little Oklahoma. Um, and you had the creation of of a network of fundamentalist radio stations that had a new business model uh, where, where churches actually purchased time and, and what they call parachurch organizations, purchased uh, advertising time and so on. And the two founders of Salem, 
uh, were also very central to the leadership of the Council for National Policy. Now, it's, it's crazy, because when I was researching this, I found that when Trump came into the White House, first of all, Salem Media got a seat in the White House press gallery. He gave Salem Media a whole day of exclusive access to the White House. Salem Radio is the fifth tied for fifth largest radio network in the United States. And yet none of my friends in the media have ever heard of them. Here's this organization that has 500 radio stations and, and has been growing. They distribute content to another two or 3,000 stations. And what people in, for example, New York don't understand is that there are a lot of parts in the country where people spend a great deal of time in their cars. They turn the radio on. And uh, I've had funny conversations with my, my, my young friends in Brooklyn because they're like, oh, everybody's listening to podcasts. It's like, not, no, not everyone. <laughs> I love the podcast, but there are a lot of people, especially in the older demographic with a very high voting turnout, who get in the car and turn on the radio. So they get this content that comes at them. And over the years, they've developed this, this set of programming. Um, now, some of them are, are uh, the newest generation of tent preachers, the Elmer, Elmer Gantries, uh, but they become increasingly directly political. So one of the most virulent radio networks in this, in this organization uh, that's very active with the CNP is American Family Radio based in Tupelo, Mississippi. And I, in my book talks, I always say, I have listened to hundreds of hours of these broadcasts, so you don't have to. Uh, but their, their, uh, their announcers literally will say that Hillary Clinton is a demon quote unquote demon yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Beto O'Rourke is the son of Satan. And I always say, gee, how do you fact check that? You know, <laughs> but this is the kind of political rhetoric you're getting. It goes so far beyond even anything you'd see in professional journalism opinion pages. You can say, oh, I disagree with their policies, but you don't call them demons, right? But that is what's going on here. And as I explained in Shadow Network, one of the things that's really important is the idea of wraparound information. So over the last 40 years, you've had a real collapse of local newspapers, especially in areas with small towns and rural populations. These newspapers have not been able to survive in the new marketplace. And so the, the, the people who live in these areas have less and less access to professional journalism and, and news production. And these media come in and fill the vacuum with misinformation and disinformation and highly charged propaganda. But through the mechanisms of the Council for National Policy and its electoral arm, which is called United in Purpose, uh, the messaging you'll hear on these radio stations is echoed by what you'll hear on, on what they call Christian Broadcasting, Christian Broadcasting Network, Trinity Broadcasting, and others, where they'll use the same language, they'll have the same take on a story. It's, it's a real echo chamber. And it will then be replicated by United in Purposes activities, which are tightly networked into churches. So there's a partner organization with the Family Research Council called Watchmen on the Wall that claims to have 70,000 pastors who are engaged. And these pastors will take the voter guides and put them into their church bulletins that are handed out to the congregation during the service. They'll project the videos in their church sanctuaries. So again, if you're a member of one of these communities, this is pretty much the only kind of information you're getting. And they they're very strategic. I think that they're working on a very high level. They'll go into areas where there will be close races, uh, swing states, battleground states, specific districts, specific races, and they will just bombard these communities with this media that's tightly networked into the rest of the organizations, including the door-to-door -door canvassers from the mass organizations. So it's, it's quite sophisticated. 
And so far, you know, as I'm hearing you talk, what I'm what I'm envisioning is we have this the Council for National Policy started by these three godfathers. It's sort of the cloud uh, in the air that, that that hovers over the it's the pantheon that hovers over the the earth. One of the most important sort of arms of that is this media empire, Salem and other radio uh, uh, conglomerates. And you really paint a vivid picture there. If I'm in Oklahoma and I get in my car and I drive an hour a day and I turn on the radio, I hear this alternative, this alternative set of facts and realities about Hillary Clinton being a demon. And I think, oh, maybe that's true. I don't know. And then I go to church and I hear the same thing. And then I open my voter guide that I got in the mail and I hear the same thing. And all of a sudden I think, oh, well, everyone knows that. Oh, everyone knows that. I heard it on the radio. I heard it at church. I'm reading it right now. It came in the mail. This is common knowledge. And if you tell me different, uh, you're the liar. You're the one living in a weirdo, non-factual you know, universe. Not me. And so you can see, as you say, how the, the media vacuum has been filled in. War costs money. The effort to retake American culture and governance was not going to be free. Luckily for the religious right, there were big financiers ready to help fund this operation. In 2017, President Trump appointed Betsy DeVos to be Education Secretary. Critics pointed out that she was a strange choice given her decades-long attempts to weaken the public school system and create vouchers that could be used for private schools with little oversight. DeVos's appointment as Education Secretary brought her family into the national spotlight. Many learned for the first time that her maiden name was Prince and that she married into the DeVos family. Both the princes and the DeVosses are enormously wealthy, and they share a Christian dominionist theology, which means they want to be the representatives of God on earth, dominate the world in his name. Another set of Republican financiers who have become household names are the Koch brothers, the hardcore libertarian billionaires who have fought government regulation on environmental issues and trade. And Nelson helped me understand how all these financiers fit into the story of the Council for National Policy and the religious right as a whole. Now we need to talk about money. Who's funding all this? Who makes all of this happen? One of the names that listeners will know is Betsy DeVos, but the story uh, as it relates to the Council for National Policy and this whole shadow network really starts with Richard DeVos, and it also starts with the Prince family. So would you mind talking to us about them? They're they're not uh, Southerners. They're not Texas oil people. They're from Michigan. They're a little bit of outliers in that sense, but they seem to be incredibly important parts of this story. Absolutely. And it's been especially interesting to me because they're part of a splinter group from the Dutch Reformed Church. They're from a a Dutch enclave in Michigan. And I have family who have attended the Reformed Church. So I was was familiar with it, but, but they take a church that is uh, very conservative, and they take it to another extreme. Um, and, and their interpretation of the theology of John Calvin is that their church should control every element of society. So Betsy DeVos was born uh, Betsy Prince, and her father, Edgar Prince, and her mother, Elsa, were, were very important big donors of the Council for National Policy, as well as the Family Research Council, which has been one of the prime lobbying groups associated with it. Edgar Prince, it's, it's a great story. He was kind of an inventor. Uh, and one of his big ideas was figuring out that you could go to a car and have a flip down mirror that had a makeup light on it. And millions and millions of cars later, he had a sizable fortune. So Betsy grew up as this princess of these two parents who were very active in the CNP. Her brother, Eric Prince, grew up in the same culture with the same ethos. Uh, She married into someone from an even richer family in the same Dutch uh, conservative reformed uh, community. And this was Richard DeVos and his father, also Richard DeVos, was another big mover and shaker in the CNP. Um, His money was based on the Amway fortune, uh, which is 
considered multi-level marketing. They've been investigated for various uh, activities they've done in the U.S. and abroad. And not, not, a not a pyramid scheme, right? It's not a pyramid scheme. That's right. Scheme. <laughs> Absolutely not in any way, possibly anything resembling a pyramid scheme, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but, you know, it, it, sometimes it walks and quacks like one. So, so Amway brought the DeVos family $6 billion, which is a lot of money to play with. And the princes had their own sizable fortune. So, so this money really, really created a, a, a pretty much bottomless fund. But the other part of it is that they would organize other very wealthy individuals and families into giving circles. Now, this is, this is a phenomenon that we have on, in both parties, Republicans and Democrats, where there'll be gatherings and sometimes the commitment will be you have to give $100,000 or $200,000 to get in the door. And then you kind of uh, horse trade and say, I'll give money to your cause, you give money to mine, and we'll figure out how to make the record keeping as obscure as possible. Uh, so it becomes a very personalized way of approaching dark money. And so a lot of these are, are based uh, in very, very conservative, fundamentalist, religious circles. Uh, but, but there's a lot of overlap, partly just because of geography to people who are involved in the extractive industries, oil, mining, uh, pipelines, et cetera. So, so one thing that really developed over the last 40 years is this working in concert and what I call a merry-go-round in funding where, where people will fund each other's favorite causes and, and the money is, can be quite large. It can be millions and millions of dollars flowing through this, this circuit. So if I am the CNP and I have these three godfathers, going back to the beginning of our story, their goal is to totally change American culture, protect the white male property owner, protect that traditional ethos. They developed a media wing that we just spoke about and that blankets uh, middle America and the South and many other places. And then enters these money folks. So the DeVos family, the Prince family and others, their motivation as a very conservative, what some would call reconstructionist, uh, or dominionist Christians is to basically control, they see the world as God's domain and they are God's representatives. And so they are going to literally dominate the world for God. That is their goal. And so they're willing to put up hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. And that means that they want to change the school system. That means that they want to change the military. That means that they want to change regulations on uh, uh, family policies, reproductive rights. So that's their motivation. But that brings me to another piece, and that's the Koch brothers. Everyone listening will have heard of the Koch brothers. We all know they're big donors. We all know that they um, have a lot of uh, sway over the contemporary GOP, or they did. But they're not religious. In fact, they're libertarian. In fact, their political bent is to get government off your back. It's not to establish God's kingdom on earth. Why, why and how do the Kochs sort of link up with people like the DeVosses who are so focused on sexuality and family and education. How do the Koch brothers get sort of brought into the network? How do they fit in as a piece of this, uh, this puzzle? Well, I think we skipped a step here, which is the way that these people regard the past and they romanticize the past. For them, the, the 18th and 19th century was this idealized past and they see America as a Christian nation by their definition, which doesn't include an awful lot of Jesus, I must say. But you know, they've, they've, they've lived under a set of rules. They've lived under certain church structures. So for example, the people, their considerable contingent from the South and from Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana, we hark back to the, the, the Civil War era a lot of them are Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists broke away from the American Baptist Church in order to defend slavery. And they will even, you know, in, in, in the past, they would even say, oh, there are slaves in the Bible. So that's what God wants because the Bible is the literal word of God, et cetera. Um, and they can find a lot of, of defenses for the idea of the patriarchy in the Old Testament written 4,000 years ago. That was 
as a common practice and they can say that's what God wants us to do and it's in this book which is literally true uh, and there's an echo of that with with the divorces and the princes in the north because given that they believe that they have the direct message from God they should define public life for everyone else in lieu of the government so what you have across the board are people who say every expansion of the federal government in any way is an encroachment on our interpretation of God's rule. We should have the dominion over these aspects of society uh, and not anyone who is bringing a secular idea to it. And anybody who doesn't look at our definition of Christianity as something that should be at the top of the American hierarchy. So that runs exactly counter to everything else that's going on in, in American culture over the last hundred years. You know, immigration, religious diversity, all of these things we talked about, where you say, all right, if this country is going to live peacefully with all of these very different groups, then we have to have a kind of egalitarian approach where we say, you have a right to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't uh, infringe on my rights. So there are these just very radically different ideas of America. So you come along and as you say, the Koch brothers were, have always been libertarians. It was really hard to even find out what their nominal religion was when I was researching this book. They, they just don't pay much attention to it. Um, but the religion they did have was that their business should reign supreme and that the federal government had no business interfering in it in any way. So they didn't want to pay taxes. Uh, they didn't want any social programs to be established that would require the payment of taxes. They didn't want any fines for, for corporate malfeasance. And, and most tellingly, they didn't want any environmental regulations uh, because those cut into their corporate profits. So here you have the kind of dawn of, of environmentalism and the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency, ironically, under, under Nixon, um, and, and really supported by the moderate Republicans of the era. And what this group does from the Nixon era on is, is purge moderate Republicans from the parties at every, at every opportunity and basically threaten those who remained and say, go get with the program or we'll purge you too. So it's been kind of a naked power grab and, and the Republican Party has been one of the first victims. So far we've traced how the Council for National Policy allied itself with an army of conservative Christians across the country in order to create the modern religious right on a national scale. We've seen how the political machine organized itself with media empires and big financiers to wage a war against the federal government and an American culture they felt was slipping away from their grasp. With these components in place, we can now understand how the religious right began to take the Republican Party hostage. Here's Ann Nelson one more time, talking about how the religious right, with the help of the CNP, the Koch brothers, and the media empires that we've outlined here have taken hold of a Republican party and held it hostage. I wanna back up just, just one step and say, okay, so we have the founding of the CNP, 1964 Goldwater campaign, by 1979, 1980, the CNP is coming into being as a political machine. If we, if we go forward about a decade and a half to the mid 90s, um, we have the CNP political operatives, we have the media empire, we have the big donors, and now the, the, the shadow network of fundamentalists, money people, political operatives, they are demanding results. And so they look at Reagan and say, look, it was great that Reagan got elected, but he was a disappointment. He didn't, he didn't do everything we wanted. George H.W. Bush was even worse. And then we got Bill Clinton, and we're, we're fed up. So on page 93 of your book, you, you have this great episode where you, you, you describe how James Dobson, who's the very famous radio host, focus on the family head, and somebody whose programs had about 28 million uh, listeners at one time. 1995, James Dobson threatened to bolt the, both the CNP and the Republican Party in the grounds of insubordination on both fronts. He arrived in Washington with an entourage, Ralph Reed, Betsy DeVos, 
to lecture Republican presidential hopeful Phil Graham. So basically, by the mid-90s, uh, folks are saying, look, we, you need to either do what we want, or we're going to take our empire, and we're going to back someone else. Uh, on, on the following page, page 94, we have another one of these episodes. And uh, he says, if, I'll go, if I go, I'll take as many people with me as possible. This is James Dobson. And he's saying, I'm going to take my 28 million radio listeners, and we're going to go somewhere else. In my mind, th this episode is a great example of why Republican politicians bow to the wishes of the CNP, the hardcore fundamentalist Christians, uh, and the other parts of the shadow network. If they don't go along, all the money, all the media empire, all of the data, all of the analytics, and all of the support goes away. And so in many ways, your book really shows us that the contemporary GOP is beholden to the shadow network. Absolutely. And I think I document case after case where that actually happens. And it, it takes a number of different forms. In one case uh, of a race in upstate New York, a Republican candidate uh, had a moderate position regarding, you know, in, in terms of being pro-choice. And they went after her and funded her, her competition until they, she was dr driven out of office and it basically driven out of public life. The same thing happens with Paul Teller, who's a member of the Council for National Policy. He now works for the White House. And uh, the Speaker of the House wasn't falling into line, and they managed to cut him off at the knees, and he's, he's history. So they've been very effective at that. And I think that as they tried to broker this relationship with leaders who rose up in the traditional fashion through American public life and politics, like, like Reagan, like George H.W. Bush, and so on, they would get these reassurances in the course of the campaign. But once they reached office, they were they, they, they did grow with the office. They did make deals with Democrats and moderate Republicans and hire competent people from outside the circle. And so that was the disappointment that the CNP people like James Dobson experienced time and time again. As you can imagine, for a group of people who believe that the United States was created for and by white Christians, who believe in a patriarchal social structure, who hold hardcore views on immigration, and refugees. Barack Obama was their worst nightmare. In Taking America Back for God, Perry and Whitehead quote an interview with someone named Matthew who says this, I saw Obama as trying to remove our Christian foundation, not necessarily the values. Obama made very clear that we are not a Christian nation and at the same time repeatedly applauded all the contributions of Muslims and Islam. There is a video of Obama basically making fun of those that believe the Bible. He quotes a passage and then says, people haven't been reading their Bibles because the Bible says this and it doesn't work if we live that way, which to me just shows that he doesn't understand the Bible. Matthew's comments are a perfect encapsulation of Christian nationalism and how Christian nationalists viewed President Obama. They saw him as wanting to remove the Christian foundation from the country. They saw him as mocking the Bible and other parts of Christian life. And most importantly, they saw him elevating other groups and religions above Christianity. Rather than seeing these efforts as an attempt to put religious, racial, and ethnic minorities on an equal playing field with white Christians, Christian nationalists see this as an attempt to overtake their priority and their power in the United States. With this in mind, it's not hard to see why the religious right has come to understand Donald Trump as an instrument for the restoration of the United States to its Christian past. While many of them were hesitant to support his candidacy, throughout his presidency, they have seen results. He fights for them, he knocks down walls, and more than anything, he does what they ask when it comes to federal judges, policies in the military, and other areas of governance. Here's Ann Nelson one last time, explaining how this all played out in the 2016 election. I want to come to Trump because a lot of folks see Trump as, oh, some of these Christian folks voted for him while holding their nose. And, and I think the Trump presidency has really shown us that's not true, that we need to get rid of that myth. But we can see the seeds of the Trump presidency in the early 2000s. If we go back to Paul Weyrich, 
you have this great explanation uh, in the same chapter of the book where Paul Weirich, who's really the godfather visionary of this whole shadow network, uh, sort of shows up and really entrenches himself ideologically and him and his protégés develop a new manifesto. So part of that manifesto in, in 2001 or so is what you call a virtual declaration of war on American culture and governance. They say that they're gonna explicitly use guerrilla tactics to undermine the legitimacy of the dominant regime. They're gonna to contribute to a vague sense of uneasiness and dissatisfaction with existing society. We need to break down before we can build up. Those are their words. This is not your words. This is not your description. This is their words of what they're gonna do. They're going to uh, engage in intimidating people and institutions. They say we must be feared, so they will think twice before they opens, open their mouths. They say they want to stoke the flames of alienation. Folks are obviously surprised by Trump and uh, his ongoing support from, from uh, white evangelicals and others involved with the Shadow Network. But I can see here in 2001, basically, this is the ground from which the soil of a Trump presidency grew. I mean, that's very clear to me that these tactics became so anti-democratic and so anti-pluralist. And they just are basically like, our goal is victory. It's not democracy. It's not equality. It's not any of that. We want to win. That's it. So Trump's your perfect candidate for that. I mean. Yeah. I, and, and I think that it, yeah, I, I would say that in 2016, a lot of the evangelicals did hold their nose in, in voting for Trump. And they have become happier and happier with him for the first, I would say, two or three years of his presidency, because he is a transactional candidate, first of all. He gets quid pro quo because that's what business is. It's not about ideals. It's not about vision. It's about the horse trading. And they had very definite requests or demands in, in return for their support for him. One was to let them nominate federal judges. And that has happened at, at epic speed. They have, they have been stocking the, the judiciary with their people. And the nominations, as agreed in 2016, the nominations have come from the National Rifle Association, the Heritage Foundation, and the Federalist Society, all run by members of the CNP. And Trump has really not cared about an alternative approach. He's just checked off the boxes, nominated their people, and the Republican Senate has confirmed them, and they are in, in the course of transforming the American judiciary. I don't think they'll get there by November, but if they have another four years, they will transform the American legal system in this way. Uh, another was for the ability to write certain elements of the Republican Party platform. So that's where you had the introduction of language allowing conversion therapy for LGBTQ people which is medically discredited. It's been denounced by any number of people, but Tony Perkins himself was granted the ability to write that language. Um, and uh, so there, there's just been you know, many elements where Trump has given them what they've wanted and then given them the ability to advise him at a, at a level that has been unprecedented. Another example is banning transsexuals from the military over the objections of the Pentagon, which didn't want to do it. But they, over, they had the power, imagine, to override the Pentagon about who is eligible for military service. That's extraordinary. And I don't even know, I mean, I can't think of historical examples in previous administrations where that's been the case. So of course they're happy, they're, they're getting what they want. And in fact, one of their, their pollsters um, has said, Trump is God's wrecking ball, and our job is to destroy the federal government. Well, I can only say that right now, what we're watching with the coronavirus and the way that the, the Centers for Disease Control are being hampered in a scientific and medical response to a pandemic, you're seeing the destruction of the federal government and its job in defending the public at an unprecedented and tragic level. There's no way to outline the extensiveness of the Shadow Network in one hour. In order to understand its full reach, you'll have to read Ann Nelson's book and then several others. But I'd like you to walk away with a couple things in mind. First, Christian nationalism 
is a political orientation, not a theological one. That's why the religious right is comprised of white evangelicals, but also conservative Catholics, Mormons, and Jews. They all share, in some way, a desire to return America to a social order based on God's rule and an understanding of that social order as dominated by white patriarchal men. Second, the Shadow Network is a helpful way to understand how the religious right is formed around a cluster of certain political and social issues. The CNP works with organizations such as the NRA and the Family Research Council. They use their extensive networks, media empires, finances, and voter mobilization movements in order to galvanize voters around issues like gun rights, abortion, opposition to gay marriage, religious liberty, and several others. As I've said several times, politics shapes religion just as much as religion shapes politics. The modern religious right has been fronted by evangelical pastors and leaders, but in many ways it was designed and implemented by political operatives, big donors, and media moguls, and it hasn't stayed within the United States. On the next episode, we'll explore how these networks have extended across the globe and allied themselves with far-right political movements, including white nationalists and white supremacists. Thanks for listening. My name's Brad Onishi. This is The Orange Wave, a history of the religious right since 1960, a series by Straight White American Jesus. You can find the show on Twitter, at StraightWhiteJC. You can find me, at Bradley Onishi. We can always use your help and support. Go to straightwhiteamericanjesus.podomatic.com in order to find our PayPal or Patreon. Until next time, thanks for listening.